Open your Bible to Judges chapter 12, and let's look at verses 1 through 15. Open your Bible, navigate on your device, however it is you encounter the Word of God and can follow along. Judges 12, 1 through 15. The topic we're going to find there, because in their dialect they could not pronounce the S-H sound, the men of Ephraim were identified and killed by fellow Israelites as they attempted to retreat. The title of our message, Shibling Rivalry. You see what I did there? Father, thanks for our morning. We uh, see this ancient story, Lord, and we know uh, ahead of time that it has a modern application to our hearts. We want to see it in its context, what it meant to the flow of the nation of Israel at a difficult time, the time of the judges. But we want it to be up to date in our own hearing as well. Uh, giving us a message of hope and strength in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray in his name, and all those who agreed said, amen. Does anyone really say potato? Anybody here? You know what I'm talking about? You remember that song? You remember the old song? Who remembers the song? All right, we're all going to sing it, those of us that remember it. This is our participation part. Ready? You say potato. Ready? You say potato, and I say potato. You say tomato, I say tomato, potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. Thank you very much. We're now using that as part of our marriage counseling. (laughs) Ahead of our trip to Kentucky in May, I practiced my pronunciation of Louisville. Louisville. And every time somebody would say something, I would try and get that in the conversation so they knew how stupid I really was. City names can be tough. One of the brothers here in our fellowship once told me he was going to Gila Bend, Arizona. And I asked him to look out for Gila monsters while he was there. George W. Bush was made fun of for saying nuclear instead of nuclear. Jimmy Carter was also guilty of mispronouncing it, sometimes saying nuclear and sometimes drawling something that sounded like nuclear. While we're on that word, however, I didn't know this, but former President Dwight Eisenhower and Edward Teller, the father of the H-bomb, also said nuclear. So I'm going for that as the correct pronunciation. I mean, if the father of the H-bomb says we're in the nuclear age, then we are. In the episode of Seinfeld, the Chinese restaurant, George Costanza is waiting for a call from his girlfriend. The maitre d' calls out, caught right, caught right, several times. George obviously ignores it. When he goes up and he asks if a call came through for Costanza, the maitre d' said, yes, I call out, caught right, caught right, just like that. Nobody come up, I hang up. (laughs) Mispronunciation is no laughing matter in the story we're going to read today. In the book of Judges. After picking a fight they wouldn't win. The men of the tribe of Ephraim tried to retreat home by crossing the fords of the Jordan. The Gileadite army of Jephthah controlled the crossing and they were out for blood. Verses 5 and 6. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. And he would say Thuboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. 
As we'll see, this was a terrible sibling rivalry. It was brother versus brother to the death. Christians are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Is the church free from sibling rivalry? I wish it were. Writing to the Christian brothers and sisters in Corinth, the Apostle Paul said, You are still carnal, for where there is envy and strife and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men, like unsaved men? Envy, strife, and division characterize the tribes in our verses. They characterize the church at carnal, and they can sadly characterize us as well. We're not going to see any solution as the men of Gilead murder the Ephraimites. It serves more of a warning. However, 23 years later, God will raise up a judge from the tribe of Ephraim, demonstrating for us his desire for unity among his people. I'll organize my thoughts around two points that are going to be a pronunciation nightmare. Number one, don't divide over your personal shibboleths. And number two, do unite despite your personal sibboleths. Let's take a look at shibboleths first. Now, shibboleth is a word that just means stream in Hebrew. Because of this incident in Judges, it has come to mean a custom or a principle or a belief that distinguishes a particular class or group of people. You and I can and do have shibboleths. Some are essential points of biblical doctrine and practice. Others are things we can agree to disagree agreeably about. There are things worth fighting for in the church. Jude, in his letter, encourages us, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There are essential doctrines that we cannot compromise. Of course, by contend earnestly, Jude did not mean we murder non-believers. This is more of a given answer to those who are arguing. And we're to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, meaning essential doctrine, not our particular spin on it. Let me give you a historical example of a shibboleth failure on the part of the church. I'm going to quote from an article titled, The Persecution of the Anabaptists. The term Anabaptist was used to describe and define certain Christians during the Reformation. These Christians rejected infant baptism, choosing instead believer's baptism. Since many of them had been baptized in their infancy, they chose to be baptized as believing adults. So their enemies called them Anabaptists, re-baptizers. For their crime of believer's baptism, Anabaptists were heavily persecuted during the 16th century and into the 17th by both Roman Catholics and Protestants. We are, in practice, Anabaptists. We would, therefore, have been severely persecuted by the Reformers like Martin Luther. And what kind of persecution are we talking about? Anabaptism was declared a capital offense. You could be executed by beheading, or I like this, since it's about baptism, drowning. The article goes on to say, thousands sealed their faith with their blood. When all efforts to halt the movement proved vain, the authorities resorted to desperate measures. Armed executioners and mounted soldiers were sent in companies through the land to hunt down Anabaptists and kill them on the spot without trial or sentence. Now, baptism as a doctrine is a shibboleth we must contend for, but not by murder. The method of baptism, and whether it be infant or believers, is worth disagreeing over agreeably. Don't get me wrong. I'm totally convinced that the Bible teaches believer baptism. That's what we practice here. But I'm not going to divide over methods of baptism 
with sincere Christians. So having said all that, as we work through the story, be listening to the Lord to identify any personal shibboleths you might have, especially non-essential ones that would cause envy and division and strife. And so verse 1, the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon? You didn't call us to go with you. We're going to burn your house down on you with fire. Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons born to Joseph in Egypt. Even though Manasseh was first born, when it came for Grandpa Jacob to give the patriarchal blessing upon him, he blessed Ephraim first. He passed over Manasseh and blessed Ephraim. The tribe of Ephraim would therefore be greater than Manasseh in Jewish history. And there are times in the Bible where the northern ten tribes of Israel are collectively called Ephraim where the writer means all ten tribes, but he just calls them Ephraim. They were a mighty tribe, and it seemed to go to their heads. Now, earlier in the book of Judges, we saw these men of Ephraim upset with Gideon because they weren't called to that battle. Gideon was able to resolve the conflict with diplomacy. This time, they're upset with Jephthah and the men of Gilead. And they seem a lot more worked up this time. They threatened to burn their houses down on them with fire. Why so much angst against Jephthah? Well, there may have been some sibling rivalry. You see, the region of Gilead was in the territory inherited by Manasseh. Big brother Manasseh, who was passed over by Jacob, in this case got the glory over the Ammonites, and little brother Ephraim, with the blessing, was envious. A spiritual heart exam would have revealed that the men of Ephraim thought more highly of themselves than they ought to. Have you ever been overlooked in the church? Do you think you're being overlooked right now? Did someone else get chosen or recognized instead of you? If you think you're Ephraim to their Manasseh, then you're probably being overlooked so that God will show you your heart. You know that scripture, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. None of us read that and think, oh, that's me. I definitely think more highly of myself. We, we read that and we think, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll avoid that. You don't know you're thinking more highly of yourself until something happens and you find yourself doing it. Until you're overlooked or ignored or something like that. And then all of a sudden, it's like, Gene, I'm going to burn your house down. And you think, oh, where did that come from? I don't want to be, I don't want to be Ephraim. I really don't. And so, you know, a lot of times we're so worried about the work we do for God, we forget that we are the work of God. That he is working in us as well as through us. And his work in us is super important to him. As he conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. And he uses things that happen. Non-malicious. You know, if people get overlooked, it's not malicious. But uh, God will use that in order to do his work in our heart. Verse 2. Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So Jephthah thought he had sent out a call to Ephraim. Maybe he sent it in the post office instead of UPS, and that's why it never got where it was going. But from his person, it's probably still in the mail. You have Anybody have trouble with the post office? A couple of you? The rest of you aren't telling the truth. From his perspective, they didn't answer, so he proceeded without them. So Jephthah said, I called Ephraim. You guys didn't answer, so we had to fight. It may therefore have been a serious but simple misunderstanding. And I would submit to you that many, if not most, church conflicts at least start out as simple misunderstandings. Love believes all things. 
that's a Christian way of saying we ought to give others the benefit of the doubt, but also with emphasis on believing the best of them and not the worst. So verse 3, when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Proverbs eighteen seventeen, we read, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And that just means we need to hear both sides of the matter, the whole side, and do some examination. Jephthah's side of the story seems compelling. He had clearly no malice. He thought he had called them and that they didn't show up. And you don't see him going to them and saying, you guys should have showed up. Now I'm going to burn your house down. The Ephraimites were totally overreacting. So this should solve it, right? Well, hardly. Verse 4, Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. Now, we don't know when this insult came through. If it's chronological, it seems that this was their response to Jephthah's explanation. They come and say, we're going to burn your house down. Jephthah says, you got it wrong. I did call you. And instead of saying, okay, let's let bygones be bygones, they said, you guys aren't Manassites and you're not Ephraimites. Now, what did they mean? Well, remember, Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. His father took him in and raised him as his own. But once dad died, Jephthah's family ran him off. And in Gilead, where he ended up, Jephthah attracted an army of similar misfits. And so this was the Ephraimite way of saying, you guys are just a bunch of trailer trash. You don't deserve to get this victory. And we do because we are the mighty Ephraimites. The description by the men of Ephraim, I was thinking about it, it's actually accurate. But it should have been praiseworthy to see that God had used Jephthah and his men despite their social status. Don't we rejoice at some of the odd characters God saves by his grace? Just look right next to you. You think, how could God use that person sitting next to me? And you know some of the really odd things about your spouse or your children. You think, hey, God's using them anyway. And so when they come and say, you guys, you're the son of a prostitute and you've got all these unworthy men. Praise the Lord. Look at what God can do. But instead, this was a serious insult. They intended it to hurt and it did. And Jephthah, who we've seen as a diplomat, abandoned diplomacy in favor of conflict. Now, he may have had no choice. I'm not trying to defend him. But after all, the Ephraimites did come to fight, meaning they were armed. And so both sides fueled the fire. As I mentioned earlier, there are no principles here for how to avoid open conflict. It serves more of a warning at the terrible consequences of envy and strife and division. It's for us to recognize these things as they begin and to not let them grow to where they can cause real problems. I mentioned Paul's rebuke of the Christians in Corinth. One of the ways they were fighting one another was by litigation. They were suing one another. Uh, Paul said, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before unbelievers and not before saints? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who's able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. 
and you do these things to your brothers. You catch what Paul said there? To the one suing, he said, you should accept the wrong and let yourself be cheated. To the cheater, he said, recognize that you are doing wrong and obviously repent of it. Paul, his basic philosophy was, you need to stay out of court where non-believers see believers fighting each other because it destroys the testimony of Jesus Christ. So on Sunday evening, these guys were getting together, having their pot faiths and having communion, speaking in tongues, singing in tongues, worshiping God, and planning their lawsuits for the next day, (laughs) dragging each other to court. And Paul said, isn't there, there, and I think what he really means is the least wise Christian in your midst could really judge this issue better than a judge. He was not saying there's anything wrong with judges out in the world. He wasn't indicating they were corrupt or wrong or evil. He was saying this is a church matter. We are church people. We are Christians. Judge one another. Sometimes Christians try this. It's, you know, they say, well, you know, I, I, we have this issue. Can, can you adjudicate this when you get together a bunch of guys? And everything's fine until you make a decision. Then they say, well, we don't like that decision. We're going to sue now anyway. So we're willing to submit to your decision as long as it goes our favor. And Paul says, let yourself be wronged. Be defrauded. Don't wrong others. That's the solution to this, not lawsuits. And if you have to fight over it, let the church decide. Bring it to the leadership of the church that you trust and let them decide and you stick by their decision. Verse 5. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. This tells us that the men of Ephraim were defeated and retreating. Then he goes on to say, when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And we were soldiers. Mel Gibson portrays Lieutenant General Hal Moore in the Battle of Ladrang or Ladrang in Vietnam. I recall that general being a master strategist. And because he knew the lay of the land and troop movements, he was able to protect his soldiers and always be one step ahead of the Vietnamese. Jephthah, or one of his lieutenants, had the foresight to cut off the Ephraimite escape route. And so, verse 5, they seized the Jordan. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. And he would say, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. The Ephraimites had insulted the parentage of Jephthah. How interesting that they had to deny their own heritage now. It was, you understand? They're so proud of being Ephraimites, but when they say, hey, are you an Ephraimite? No, no, I am not an Ephraimite. I'm just trying to get across the Jordan. And they'd say, well, say Shibboleth then. And so they had to deny their birthright, and then they got killed anyway. I googled U.S. dialects and found a map showing 24 regions of American English dialects. I didn't know that. I figured there was surfer talk, southern drawl, and then maybe the New York, Boston kind of a thing, you know. But 24 areas of dialect. In Jaws, you remember Chief Brody is a city boy transplanted to Amity. His wife corrects his pronunciation of the word yard, saying, in Amity, you say yad. And then he replies sarcastically, they're in the yard, not too far from the car. (laughs) She says, that was terrible. Jephthah judged Israel six years. That's not very long, is it? But we can't read anything into it because Jephthah served the Lord 
at his will, not his own. You see, you want to jump on that and say, yeah, Jephthah, he blew it, and you know, he did this, and he did that, and didn't do that, and he only judged six years. But we don't know. That, maybe that was the tenure. Maybe that was Jephthah's tenure. And so we leave that to the Lord. We can't judge each other on the basis of these things, on how long we've been doing something. Faithfulness is what God is into. Are you able to identify any personal shibboleths? We're going to return to that in a minute. But first, remember we as Christians do have shared shibboleths. They are the foundational doctrines of biblical Christianity. There are different lists. Uh, One theologian suggested a reasonable list of fundamentals would necessarily begin with these doctrines explicitly identified in Scripture as non-negotiable, the absolute authority of Scripture over tradition, justification by faith alone, the deity of Christ, and the Trinity. The good folks over at gotquestions.org list the following as the essentials of the Christian faith. The deity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, salvation through Jesus Christ alone, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, monotheism, and the Trinity. Michael Spiegel, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Cemetery, <laughs> Seminary, said this. The Greek original of our word orthodox means correct opinion. In Christian theology, it refers to the correct views on essential truths of the Christian faith and the proper observance of central practices. As a rule of thumb, orthodoxy is that which has been believed and practiced everywhere, always, by all. It thus means the right opinion about crucial doctrines in practice in keeping with what true Christians have always believed about these things. Some of the beliefs that pass the general rule of what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all includes... The triune God as creator and redeemer, the fall and resulting depravity, the person and work of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith, the inspiration and authority of scripture, redeemed humanity incorporated into Christ, and the restoration of humanity and creation. And so we would contend earnestly for these and other essentials, and we must divide from any who do not hold to them. But back to the question, are you able to identify any personal shibboleths? Let me give you one that's uh, in this area a lot. And that is Sabbath worship. Now, it's easy to prove in the New Testament and in church history that Gentile Christians, the early church uh, that was comprised of Gentile Christians, worshipped on Sunday on the first day of the week. That's historically true. It's biblically true. However, there are those who say we want to worship on Saturday. We want to keep the Sabbath. You can do that. You can worship on Saturday. We could have church services on Monday or Monday night or Wednesday or whenever we want to. We follow the early church in Sunday morning, but we could do it whenever. But this becomes a personal shibboleth when that person who's a Sabbatarian says, and you must worship on Saturday with us. And some of the Sabbatarian groups go so far as to say that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast and that you're part of the Antichrist movement if you worship on Sunday. And so now we're talking about a, uh, something that divides Christians that is a personal shibboleth that the Bible does not teach. So things like that. Most shibboleths are not doctrinal. They're your personal behavioral standards that you demand other believers meet in order for you to have fellowship with them. It's things like music and movies and piercings and your priorities, things like that where you have an opinion that this is what the Bible teaches, and if people don't agree with me, they're not as spiritual as me. And they become personal, and they cause division and strife and envy 
and they shouldn't be spoken of among us. And so Richard Baxter, famous saying, still appropriate, he said once, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity or love. Now, real quick, in verses 8 through 15, three judges of whom we know little bridge the gap between Jephthah and then Samson, who's coming up. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, gave away 30 daughters in marriage, brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years, and Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. There's an immediate contrast to Jephthah, where Jephthah had only one daughter, Ibsen had 30 and 30 sons, and acquired 30 other daughters in marriage. And this tells us that God can use us despite our background and personal circumstances. The Apostle Paul once said, we learn to serve God whether we're abounding or whether we're abased. Many a believer lives a life that has been abased. Maybe they can't have children, or maybe they have an affliction, they've made mistakes, their upbringing was terrible. Well, then you're like Jephthah, nevertheless called to serve the Lord as his hero. Many a believer lives a life that is abounding. You've got a wife, you've got kids, you've got grandkids, maybe great-grandkids, a career that is demanding but going well. Everything's just humming along in your life. You're like Ibsen with no excuse for not stepping up to serve the Lord. You can't say, well, I'm so successful and busy that I don't have time. We all are needing to serve the Lord and figure out what his will is for our lives. Verse 11, after him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Agilon in the country of Zebulun. And so you think, come on, give me at least one thing Elon did. Just one episode to hang on to, but nothing. Doesn't mean his service was insignificant. He is, after all, in the Bible. You're not. Not really. I'm not either, though. Not to, you know, keep looking for myself. We might be there in kind of the Jewish Kabbalic numerology sense, but not in an obvious way. Now, I'll tell you what I do glean from Elon. Publicity breeds notoriety, which brings scrutiny. Most of us are better off being obscure. We couldn't handle the pressure of the spotlight. Let's face it. There are things you don't want people to know about you. And the truth is, these Bible characters... Probably a lot of them wish that there were less detail about them in the Bible. We were having a discussion about this earlier. Other than Daniel, every other Bible character was a knothead. I mean, there's, there's something bad about everybody that they, you'd wish. Could, could you just leave out that part? Gideon, we looked at Gideon. Could you leave out the whole end of my life thing where I became an idolater again and led Israel into idolatry? It kind of puts a stain on it. So... Don't be in a hurry to be the one that is interviewed when the news crews are there. And if you do, just keep saying Jesus over and over again. Then you'll either preach the gospel or they won't use the footage, one of the two. <laughs> Verse 13, after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Let's call him Grandpa Abdon because as far as I researched it, he's the only judge who's noted for his grandsons. His sons and his grandsons rode around on 70 donkeys. It's probably just me, but my mind flashed on the fact that my dad was a Shriner and he was part of a precision go-kart troop that performed in local parades. Remember those guys, you know, the little fez hats and their little, little cars going back and forth. Oh, they're going to crash. I wonder if these sons and grandsons were a precision donkey troop. 
riding through Israel, performing at farmers' markets and fairs. Here come the 70 donkeys of Adon. You don't know. It's possible. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim. Interesting. He was an Ephraimite. And that brings us full circle, at least with regard to the verses we've read today. After the Ephraimites were nearly wiped out, 23 years later, one of them is God's choice to be the hero of all Israel. He was a Sibboleth guy who might have harbored a deep resentment, but God saw him as able to judge And that meant he was able to unite where there had once been envy, strife, and division. You know, we can think of Christianity as having a multitude of dialects. I'm not talking about languages, although that is true too. I'm talking about the differences in how we worship and serve the Lord based on the orthodox essentials of the faith that we contend for. Let's be sure our shibboleths are essential and not personal, that they preserve unity while we contend for the faith. Amen?